Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a patriot to the natural world, and a person who knows activism just never ends. Activism never ends. It just it keeps going. But we are live this morning. We are live, and we would love your calls, 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. And it's a great day to call in. Very pleased with our guest um, today, Atina Diffley. Um, Atina Diffley is well known in the local food movement because her family was very active in the local food movement before it was called the local food movement. Um, and she wrote a wonderful book called Turn Hair Sweet Corn, which earned a Minnesota Book Award. And now you've made it into a play. I know. I am so excited and really excited to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you here. So tell us about what you're doing today at the Fringe Festival and this week. Well, um, Jim Stowell, a local playwright, turned um, adapted Turn Here Sweet Corn for the stage. The actress is Megan Wells. She's just dynamic. She's a storyteller out, out of Chicago and really brings the emotion out of the story. So she'll be at the Fringe Festival. Opening show is today at 1 o'clock, and it runs through next weekend. Next weekend. And, and then how do people get tickets for this? Let's see. Do you have the website there? Um, so the website, Minnesota Fringe Festival. Um, so it's it's a. It's, I, I may not have the website, but we can look that up later. But the the tickets. Uh, there's a performance today, August third at one o'clock, and one at five thirty on August fourth and August fifth at ten p.m. Um, and so this is an adaptation of your book, Turn Here Sweet Corn, which I read several years ago. And so, how would you describe the book, Turn Here Sweet Corn? Well, first and foremost, it's a memoir, so it's a true story about our farm and our lives, which when I started writing, I actually didn't know what it was about. I'd always wanted to write a book, um, and it's so fascinating to me when it was finished that I didn't know what it was going to be about when I started, so that very process of writing was so cathartic and educational for myself, and so it goes through the history of a 36-year-old farm. My husband started our farm in the early 1970s as an organic farm before there were organic standards. So he was actually the first certified produce farm organic in the Minnesota. And the two biggest stories in the farm really were the loss of our first farm to development and then a later lawsuit with Coke Industry crude oil pipeline, which the community got very involved in. So when your question was, what is the book about? It's really about our relationship with the land that feeds us. And that is just so fundamental to all human beings, the land that feeds us and the life upon it. It's a relationship. It's a relationship and it's a relationship in place. Mm -hmm. And your story um, talks about uh, it's a window on history um, of what happened here in the Twin Cities with our food system. And it's also um, um, an inspiration, your life story, about how we helped create the world we want our children to live in. Exactly. You said that really well. Thank you. So let's start with let's start where you start on the the history of of of, of gardens of Egan. Um, this was Dakota land. Yes, this was Dakota land, and they were pretty much pushed out by the 1850s when the, most of the homesteading started. And and but but that place and how that resonated with people. I mean, there's something that we've really lost in our relationship with food and relationship with each other. There's there's something that's uh, that that was that that we need to sort of reclaim. Is is that also part of what your book is talking about? Absolutely, because today's way of relating to land is so different than the Dakotas' way of relating to land was. Um, they very much understood it as a relationship that they were part of, whereas today's perspective on land is that we use it to get what we want. Whether it's a place to build a house, whether it's a chemical-based uh, farming system, it doesn't have that same component of relationship. When we look at our agricultural systems today, it's just always so shocking to me that the primary goal is one species. You've got a cornfield or a soybean field. They manage the <laughs> the plant species with an herbicide so that only one the cash crop survives. They manage insect species with a pesticide so that there are no insects in that land. And they manage the soil species with a fungicide. 
And this is really based on a faulty understanding of science. I mean, um, the Nobel Conference did a um, uh, did a great presentation last year on dirt, and there is more life forms in a teaspoon of dirt yeah. than there are than there are people. So it's not we have this reductionist thinking. But it's not really what our body needs and we have a lot of evidence right now. So for the first time, uh, people are experiencing more chronic diseases. We have an epidemic of anxiety and depression. Our, our lifespans are actually starting to go down, um, rises in all sorts of problems. Can some of that be tied to the industrial approach of, with soil as absolutely. opposed to a living approach with soil? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, think of soil – you can really think of it like mining a fossil fuel, that what, what are we growing a plant with on that soil is stored energy from plants that were alive a long time ago when they died and decomposed. That remnant of them in the soil is actually what we're using for nutrients for our plants. Um, and we're mining our soil if we aren't continually building it and feeding it, which is what organic agriculture is based upon, that we're going to manage the needs of our crop, whether it's the insect management needs, the weed management needs, the, the soil fertility needs, basically by feeding the soil. It's all about feeding the soil. And that is not how a chemical system is functioning. It's always thinking about putting the nutrients in the soil that the plant will need and perceiving the soil as just a medium to hold the roots down. Right. It's a very different concept and not based on the life of the soil. And so it ends up mining the soil. Yeah. And that whole way of living has got so many consequences. And, and yet, how do we start trying to change this thing? And I want to, I want to back up a little bit because I want to, I want to go, um, I want to talk about history now because mm -hmm. it's, and let people know the, the story that you, that, that you know. So let's start about the 1850s, um, and the Diffleys, um, in, in, in Egan. They were one of the first homesteaders in, in that community. And I think the really, Interesting to think of, thing to think about when you think about Egan and Mendota Heights and Invergrove is that was the green belt for the Twin Cities development. It it was doable in a day to take product in from there into the cities with a horse and cart. So, you know, whether it was hay for animals, horses, or food for humans, a lot of the landholders there had 10 or 20 acres of market gardens. It was a community of market gardeners. They didn't think of themselves as farmers. They thought of themselves as market gardeners. And we had sort of a – we think of this whole local food movement that's happening today and all this direct marketing. That's how people lived. Right. And the Minneapolis <laughs> Farmer's Market it was it was at the forefront of that. That was one of the key places people would go is the Minneapolis Farmer's Market, which you can all go to today. Go check them out uh -huh. today. Go, go, and that was actually a, based on a hay market that people needed hay for their horses. But people brought product to town. They had keys to the people's homes that they dropped that food off at. They delivered it door to door, um, much like today's CSA movement. That all was a really strong economy in how the Twin Cities was fed. And it had some of the best land for that sort of agriculture. That really started to fall apart in the 1950s, uh, post-war, as we had post-war conversion of wartime chemicals for agricultural use. Let's talk about that because that uh, uh, that is actually shocking. Uh, I've heard some people say that, you know, part of the reason we got industrial agriculture is like, well, hey, we made all these chemicals during <laughs> war. How can we market it now? How can we make money? Well, you know, really what, what started the whole thing was the synthesis of nitrogen from the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Because before, before that happened – the Haber-Bosch method of synthesizing nitrogen from the atmosphere, there really wasn't a way of getting nitrogen that was the most critical component these plants needed to get high yields without doing soil building and having animals for manures. So we hear a lot about how we need chemicals to feed the world, and that's really a pretty gross lie. And we hear that we need GMOs to feed the world. That's also a very gross lie. The biggest thing that first bumped um, yields happened in the 1750s to 1850s in England when they first started uh, rotating. They added uh, legume crops into rotations that had happened in a strong way in that part of the world. Um, and they did it for the manors, the, the, wealth, the wealthy landowners, for their animals. 
Well, that d- doubled yields because all of a sudden they had a plant in their rotation that was feeding these animals with pasture that was also synthesizing nitrogen in the way that looms, legumes do. They didn't even know that nitrogen was a critical element yet, and they didn't understand the synthesization process, but they saw the results. So that was our first big dump, jump in yields, and then our second one happened when we had synthesized um, false nitrogen in the from the post-war. I know um, artificial manure was the worst calamity um, to reach uh, to, to – um, Albert Howard said that, mm-hmm. artif- the problems with the artificial uh, manure. Do you um, do you want to say who Albert Ho- Howard? Um, he's kind of like a legend in organic world. He is world. really a legend, but let's let the readers look that one up themselves. Oh, this, that's a Listeners. great idea, Tina. Yeah. Everyone look up Albert Howard. I love that Because they tip. could read that for hours. He's they could. He's really quite fascinating. That, that's a great idea. Okay, so we are in 1950s. Um, we are live right now. We'd love your phone calls. The number is 952-946-6205. We're talking with Atina Diffley, who wrote Turn Hair Sweet Corn and has now made Turn Hair Sweet Corn into a Fringe Festival play, which is showing um, starting today, uh, Saturday, August 3rd at 1 o'clock. Uh, you can get more details at the Minnesota Fringe Festival. So why did you make this into a Fringe Festival play? Well, we have to give the credit to Jim's Stowell. He's a local playwright and he bought the playwrights and wrote the script for the play. And Megan Wells, and she's the actress. And Scotty Jones is the director. And is this all about trying to remember what happened? You know, it's, I think, a celebration and a direction maker. A celebration. Yeah. Sounds great. So we're celebrating here on Food Freedom Radio on AM 950-651. The phone number is 952-946-6205. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coop. I'm Connie Bjork, co-host of Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show. Join Michelle Kitzmiller and I as we focus on all aspects of health, wellness, spirituality, and growth from a mind-body-spirit-emotion perspective. On the Awakened Living Radio Show, we will discuss stress, self-care, fear, happiness, beliefs, communication, joy, pain, trauma, and more. Join us for the Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show, Saturdays at 10 a.m. Let us share with you ways to infuse vitality into life. The Audubon Centre of the Northwoods on Grindstone Lake west of Sandstone offers a great variety of environmental learning experiences for people of all ages running year-round. But did you know you can book your own event here at the centre? Check out our lakeside dining hall and the variety of lodging and meeting accommodations available. Visit us on the web at audubon-centre.org or call 320-245-ACNW. The Audubon Centre of the Northwoods. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Catch New Beginnings with Freddie Bell, Saturdays at 11 on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hi, this is Ken Hagland, host of Living Healthy and Aging Well, inviting you to listen to our new show airing on Saturdays from noon to one, where we talk about your health and your life and provide insights to living and aging well. Each week, we provide answers to important questions regarding health care, elder care, end-of-life care, and caregiver support to help you and your loved ones plan for the future and enjoy your highest quality of life today. Please join us every Saturday from noon to one for Living Healthy and Aging Well. Finding a lawyer is incredibly stressful. It can be tough to know where to start. So start with the Hennepin County Bar Association. They can connect you with over 200 thoroughly vetted, qualified attorneys practicing in over 50 areas of law. Not sure if you need an attorney or what type of attorney to request? The referral counselors at Hennepin County Bar Association can help. Call 612-752-6666 or search for Hennepin County Bar Association. The right call for the right lawyer. 
So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. We are live. Call-in number is 952-946-6205. And with us this morning is the author of Turn Here Sweet Corn, Atina Diffley. Okay, Atina, what's the song that we're hearing? Oh, tequila. We have a famous corn dance on our farm. It really started one day when we were picking corn because those those plants are so tall. And it's, they're taller than the people. So when you're in the corn harvesting it by hand, you can't really see each other. So when we want to let each other know where th- we are, we break off a tassel and hold it above our heads and shake it and shout, sweet corn. <laughs> and that was happening one day. And Martin was inspired to turn that into the sweet corn dance. So his band, the Pheromones, plays the song Tequila. We give everyone on the dance floor, a stalk of corn, and they run around with those stalks of corn, and the refrain is sweet corn that everyone shouts. So you heard that there, and that was recorded, and in 2006, we had a party to um, inspire people to come and testify when we were in court on a crude oil case. So yeah, let's let's talk about the pipeline case. Sure, yeah. So uh, what what... Um, well, you know, I think we have to back up a little bit because you had one trauma with the farm in Yeah, Egan. I think so we maybe should talk about that yes, first, the loss that of first. that land. Yes. Because it so much um, affected the pipeline case. Mm-hmm. We learned so much in that first loss. And I talked to another member. Now, for those who are know that Diffley, there's actually a sign called Diffley off of Highway 77. Mm-hmm. It's a big road in, in Dakota County. Um and and your fam or um, your husband's Martin's family, Martin's yep. family were fifth generation farmers who mm-hmm. wanted to stay on the land. They did want to stay on the land because it was their home. It was their home. Five generations of people had grown up there and found arrowheads there and thought about the people's lives that were there before them. Um, the that farm was one of the last farms left in Egan uh, when I was there in the mid eighties. I came in the mid eighties. It was still owned by four family members, four sisters. And being the last farm, everyone knew that its time was limited. At that point in time, there wasn't a lot of awareness in our society about how critical land close to an urban area. I already talked about how that region that was now all houses and is all houses now was once the primary food source for the Twin Cities. Um, But that just, there wasn't that awareness of it. We were just thinking anything could be shipped anywhere as a culture. So at that point in time, the mid-'80s, being the last farm left, um, we were farming it, and Martin's um, cousin Rosemary owned it and her sisters, and they also lived on the farm. So it was the farm Martin grew up on, and he had all his life wanted to farm that land. He knew that land. He knew it like the back of his hand, growing up on it as a child. And he knew it as sacred, and not as a thing. As sacred, yeah. Every spot had a, had a name. You know, there was a spot called Fox's Grave where Fox, the horse who actually broke those fields, cleared some of the scrub, um, actually died in that spot. And he was too big to move, so they dug a hole next to him, and, and that's where he was buried. Uh, there was the special crab trees. There was the side of the hill where most of the arrowheads were found. So we knew that was a spot that the Native people had used. Um, so everything was named. And the magic of that piece of land was it had never been destroyed in an agricultural way. When you think about agriculture, you know, we talk a lot now about biological diversity and um, ecosystem services, those benefits that humans receive from the ecosystem. Well, we we really don't didn't have a sense of how that once was. If you picture what land was like before Europeans and the level of diversity that existed here, if you read some of those early accounts at, of how many birds there were and the plant species, this particular farm that we were on had never been plowed from one end to the other. It was small fields nestled into the hillsides and in the land around those fields still had an intact ecosystem. There were always flowers blooming, prairie flowers. And as a young farmer, <laughs> I thought farming was really easy. I mean, <laughs> it was hard work. We planted, we weeded, we harvested, we sold, and I was tired at the end of the day. But when I say I thought it was easy, the plant, the pest management, and the um, disease management was basically being managed by the diversity of that landscape because it was still diverse. It hadn't been destroyed. It had never had chemicals on it. 
Um, most agricultural land in Minnesota doesn't have any of those species left anymore. No, it's a tragedy. Yeah, we don't even have flowers in the ditches anymore in the side of the road. So this farm had that, and that's what managed all those agricultural processes because we had that diversity. We had flowers that supported the beneficial insects. That's what managed our pest populations and kept them in check and managed our disease, et cetera. So I took that for granted. Um, at that point in the mid-'80s, a, I had never heard the word ecosystem services or biological diversity. We didn't start talking about those words as a culture until about 2005. Right. Uh, Butts was agriculture secretary and he said, get big or get out. Get big or that get was, out. That was Reagan yeah. and let's get big and get out and we get our food in this industrial system and this is all part of great America and we'll do mm-hmm. all this. So that was such a gift for me to have as a young person. And, you know, we learned like in fourth grade that the trees produce oxygen, but it wasn't very real to me. And even as a beginning farmer, I just didn't really understand all those processes were happening. Mm-hmm. And we didn't actually have much literature or science on those processes at that point in time. And then my entire world changed because the school district needed 20 acres of land for a school. There was 120 acres there and about 20 tillable. So there was a lot of land that was in wild habitat. You can't really say no to a school. And so that land had to be sold, and it, and it was. And when that happened, they brought sewer and water across the farm to serve the school. Well, because it crosses the land, the land is now more valuable because it could be developed. It has access to sewer and water, and so it has to help pay for it. And you don't have to pay those liens until the land is sold, but never ever is a fairy tale in a really long time. It's really not reality. Everybody knew that that would have to be sold someday. It was the last farm left in a suburb. And there's an 11% interest against that lien. So if you don't pay it right away in seven years, it's double. Half a million is a million owed against that land. And another seven years, two million. So the land really has noose around its neck. And everyone knew it couldn't go on forever. So four sisters actually were the owners, and they had to make the decision of what to do. And two wanted to sell and two didn't. And I was so impressed at how they stayed in relationship and worked through that decision. And the land was sold, much to many people's grief. Grief. And I was talking to somebody, I won't name them, but that grief still lives yeah. because it's like part of their family was it, died. It's a relationship It's a relationship. land. And what happened next completely changed my life because – They developed that piece of land over a three-year period, one-third, one-third, one-third. And we were allowed as the farmers to continue to farming on the land that wasn't yet developed. Well, they came in on that first third. They took every bush, every tree, every blade of grass with a bulldozer. They even removed the living soil and they sold it. There was no life left on that land. And we were farming adjacent to land that had no life. We were certified organic farmers. We were counting on the diversity of that landscape to manage our health and disease of our crops. We experienced an environmental collapse. So um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. With us is Atina Diffley. Atina Diffley is the author of Turn Here Sweet Corn, and she will be at the Fringe Festival. There will be a, a, her, a, a play has been made about her book, Turn Here Sweet Corn. We are live, 952-946-6205. Eat fresh and support local farmers this summer by shopping at the Minneapolis Farmer's Market. The market has the best selection of fresh and local fruits and vegetables, meats, and farmstead goods. Fresh at the market now, cherry tomatoes, cauliflower, broccoli, cucumbers, zucchini, beets, carrots, and even some new baby potatoes. The Minneapolis Farmer's Market is open every day, 6 a.m. to 1 p.m., plus there's additional locations Tuesday at the Hennepin County Government Center and Thursdays at Nicollet Mall. More details at mplsfarmersmarket.com. Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association and Powderhorn Park are thrilled to invite you to the Powderhorn Art Fair. Shop hundreds of local and regional artists on serene Powderhorn Lake. Taste foods from local food trucks and enjoy exploring the Powderhorn community. Considered the best regionally juried art fair for nearly three decades, it takes place right in South Minneapolis in picture-perfect Powderhorn Park. The Powderhorn Park Art Fair begins Saturday, August 3rd and runs through Sunday, August 4th. 
Join the fun from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The success of the art fair comes from Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association's long-standing collaboration with the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board, and a portion of the proceeds support youth programming at Powderhorn Park. There'll be over 200 artists, 20 food trucks, and great fun at Powderhorn Park. The Powderhorn Park Art Fair begins Saturday, August 3rd, and runs through Sunday, August 4th. For more information on the art fair, go to ppna.org. That's ppna. Finding the best foods the Twin Cities has to offer is easy with EatLocalMinnesota.com. Offering the top local and independently owned restaurants, EatLocalMinnesota.com has everything from burger joints to cocktails and fine dining. It's Greek to me has been a family-owned Lynn Lake landmark since 1982. Under new ownership, the Janakis Karas family offers classically inspired modern Greek cuisine in a sublime space with gracious hospitality. Be sure to visit their charming bar and explore wines and specialty drinks from Greece. Find it's Greek to me at 626 West Lake Street in Minneapolis or at it's Greek to me mn dot com. Crooners Lounge and Supper Club invites you to check out their beautiful facilities for your next special occasion. Book your wedding reception, retirement party, business dinner, or other special event with confidence, knowing their expert staff and award-winning chef will make it a big hit with your guests. Call today to get a quote. 763-571-9020. Does your dog deserve food that is as wholesome as the food you feed your family? Food that is natural without artificial ingredients? At Total Dog Company, we carry Nature's Logic brand dry and canned foods. Nature's Logic pet foods are made without any synthetic vitamin mixes or other synthetic nutrients. All the goodness comes from real food. Find Nature's Logic at Total Dog Company in New Hope, right off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North, and at totaldogcompany.com. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Sam Turnberg. Today there's a chance of storms. The high near 85. Well, tonight's going to be partly cloudy with a low around 66. Tomorrow's mostly sunny with a high near 86. Monday a chance of storms with a high near 84, and Tuesday sunny with a high near 80. The Powderhorn Art Fair is here today and tomorrow. The Powderhorn Art Fair will celebrate 28 years of art and community in idyllic Powderhorn Park, and the proceeds will fund youth and community programming. That's today and tomorrow at Powderhorn Park. More info at ppna.org. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. In studio with us is Atina Diffley, the author of Turn Here Sweet Corn. Her story about、um, one of the last farms in Egan being developed and how hard that was. And that's where we left at、um, in in the break. That this was. This was heart wrenching for you and Martin. It was heart wrenching, and watching an environmental collapse is the part that changed me. Because they removed all the life from the the landscape, that ecosystem there there was just no there was no life to take in the water when it rained. We had serious erosion. There were no habitat for beneficial insects. We had major infestations of insects、um, and disease. So we had crop failure on every single field that was adjacent to land that had no life. So that was when I first started getting this concept of ecosystem services, the critical importance to all life of biological diversity. Now we got some great science on biological diversity, and we start seeing that as we have less species in the landscape, we have more disease transmission, we have more persistent diseases, we have more food safety issues. Um, I could go on and on and on about all the critical components of biological diversity and the fact that agriculture is actually the leading, the leading impact on biological diversity. It's not actually development; it is agriculture. Agriculture is using seventy-five, eighty percent of all fresh water use. It's a major contributor to greenhouse gases. It is、um, the majority of land uses in agriculture. So we start seeing that's. This monoculture of an agricultural system, where we're not allowing any other species on the landscape, and so many evidence of climate change this last week: record fires, a record heat wave in Europe, the flooding here. It's all; these are all、um, Earth's cries for、mm-hmm. us to to wake up and and be present to、um, to the to the、yeah. and be humble to the Earth. Yeah. So to start really getting that at a gut level. I mean, on the one hand, there was just this anguish of watching land be destroyed like that, and this was the land that my children were little on. They knew this land as that's where they learned about the divine process of life. And to a little kid, nature is so sacred; it is so spiritual for them. They talk to the plants, they talk to the rocks, they hear the rocks, they hear the soil,、um, and they just 
It was a rape experience for them because they were too young to be realizing their parents weren't all-powerful beings that could stop bad things from happening. You know, they're supposed to be cynical teenagers before they really figure that out. And right. No, they were like three and seven. So it was so traumatic. And to start understanding that from an environmental perspective, we did find a new farm. It took us six years to to find a new farm to move to. And when we bought it, it had been destroyed. It had been plowed from end to end, 100 acres, no regard for where the water flowed and no other species on it. The soil was compacted. The rain could not enter. The microbial um, health of the soil was pretty desperate. We took that uh, new farm out of production for three full years before we cash cropped it and just worked on getting the life back. And here I came from a farm where that life still existed from pre-European times, that intactness. And here we moved to a new farm where we have to create it. And let me tell you, it is a lot of work to create it. That was when I started getting what what had actually been lost, you know, that maturity of having a little more age and experience and starting to see, oh, I've got to now bring waterways in. I've got to plant species for beneficial species, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have to build this soil. And we took three years uh, out of production to do that. So that's really the job before many of us here now is that we have to be rebuilding our ecosystems. And it's a pretty serious task ahead of us to be doing this. And a lot of people are in on it and know how important this is. A lot of people are doing this. And it's what organic standards are based on is an ecosystem-based agricultural system that doesn't destroy, that builds, that leaves the land in better shape and utilizes the diversity of the landscape to grow those crops. Now, you and your husband, Martin, were involved in the early years of um, establishing the organic standards. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk briefly about that? Well, yeah, that is really critical because I think at this point in time, knowing the history is really critical because people are getting frustrated. First of all, our organic standards are actually the highest standards, food standards in the country. So um, while they're not perfect, and any time there's money to be made, organic is now a success. So the most profitable um, form of agriculture at a time when agriculture is actually really struggling, um, there's going to be fraud. It doesn't mean that the standards are inherently bad. Um, and so I think it's just really critical for people to understand that there was a lot of work that went behind those standards. And the goal was not to create the highest possible standard. Because we have a really diverse country. You know, we have dry climates, we have wet climates, we have clay soils, we have sand soils. And we had to create something that was going to actually work nationally so that we could have one standard for the country. That became really critical for the organic market to grow because in the 70s and 80s, we had all these different standards. California was 12 months without prohibited substances. Maine was seven years. Minnesota, we were in the middle at four years. Um, so we just had to come up with this one federal standard. It took a lot of people engaged um, to accomplish that. Very good. And I uh, right now, uh, Cornucopia has a um, action because um, uh, uh, under the current administration, they're trying to uh, allow uh, gene editing or GMOs yeah. in the organic standards. So, so yeah. right now, if it's labeled organic, it doesn't have GMOs. It does not have GMOs. GMOs are not allowed in organic. And there will always be. You know, industrial and large-scale agriculture is now very involved in organic and invested in it. And I think that people can just remember that we live in one of the most fertile areas of the United States. So anything that can be grown here is being grown here organically. We have so many options to buy local and organic food. And a beautiful ecosystem. Again, get out to the Minneapolis Farmer's Market today, uh, Seward Co-op. We have a lot of wonderful leaders in this area. Um, I want to make sure we tell the story of your pipeline. So you, you had the traumatic experience being forced to move from the last farm in Egan. You found a new farm. You let it lay flat, a fellow for three years. You did all these things to improve the soil. And then what happened? Well, we farmed there uh, for 15 years and put together a very productive farm. Our yields were incredible there. Um, we really had gotten that soil fertile. And then in 2006, so after we'd been at our new farm for 15 years, we got a letter. Uh, there were actually three of them because we had three parcels of land there. And it was from the Mincan Project. And when I looked at those letters, I actually thought it was a food shelf <laughs> asking for a donation. I was really irritated that I sent three. <laughs> and I threw them in the trash. 
Um, and then I went, ah, I should open one, and I did. And it was not a food shelf. It was a Coke Industries, K-O-C-H, as in the Coke brothers we all love to hate, um, letter. It was a Coke Industries-owned crude oil pipeline company informing us that we were um, on the route of a incoming pipeline. And by the way, we were also going to host a pumping station. Ooh. My heart just stopped. I knew from my prior experience that if a pipeline went through that farm, that was it. We would quit. And you know what? We'd already rebuilt a farm. We weren't going to do it again. We knew it would be the end of the farm. And I'm really embarrassed to tell you the first thing I did. But it's so critical to the message that we all have to be active that I tell it, which is I grabbed those three letters that I ran down to the machine chair where Martin was working and I waved them in his face and I, you know, I told him in very short language what they said. And then I said that he had to call the pipeline company up and tell them they couldn't put it through here. And then I went into a long spiel about what he should tell them. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and said, you've got the answers. You call them. And I said, well, they'll listen to you better because you're a man. Ooh, yeah, we were talking about that before. And he just laughed. He just laughed because he knew I was the right person for the job. And I was. I was really the right person for the job. And now in retrospect, I can see that I learned so much from the loss of the first farm about why this mattered. I want to I want to go and tell more story about the pipeline, but I want to take this little detour about being a woman uh-huh. and why you decided to move with the name Atina. Well, you know, I realized I was giving my power away as a young person. I grew up in a very traditional Catholic family where women were expected to stay home and raise the children. Um, so that was the only role model I ever had, and it did not jive with who I wanted to be, but I didn't know what I wanted to be. And I left home at 16, just eager and ready to start my life. Um, And I took care of a woman who was in her 90s named Anita, which is Atina backwards. And Anita was a suffragette. And she still lived in the house that she'd lived in her entire life. She was in her 90s, so she was born in the 1880s. She wasn't talking any longer, but all of her possessions were still in this house. There were handbills about the suffragette movement. There were pictures of her (laughs) marching. And because she wasn't talking anymore, I had this opportunity to create the perfect role model for myself. Um, I could really imagine who she was and who I wanted to be. And the fact that she spoke out against such odds, it took like 50 years to get the right to vote, which in the 70s when I was seeing all this history – it just seemed so crazy. Well, what do you mean women could vote? What do you mean? They said things like women weren't smart enough. And, <laughs> um, but I still had to always learn to manage that internalized message that I got as a young kid. I mean, my brothers drove tractor. I didn't get to drive tractor. I got sent to make lunch. Um, so that message that I wasn't good enough as a woman would would come up. And it was an important thing in my life that I really had to learn to um, reevaluate and what is really true about me as a woman and that pipeline case, I was shocked when I said that to him because I was like, no, I've already dealt with that message. I know that's not true. But I did have to remind myself. And so finding that place for all of us, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. There is some part where we've internalized some negative message that someone else gave us. We get to define ourselves. We get to say who we are. And that is really a critical component in our being able to accomplish the things that we want to do in our life is don't let anyone else define us. We define ourselves. And um, you talk a lot about the spiritual relationship of the land. So imagine if you had a relationship with something that was absolutely ancient and so precious that life, including yours, could not survive without it. What would you do to protect it? Exactly. That is the soil. That is the land that feeds us. And our culture is now so removed from agriculture. You know, it's not that long ago, 300 years ago, the vast majority, 99-some percent of human beings actually were directly involved with agriculture and food. That's what it took because we didn't have, you know, machines to do the labor and and we didn't have uh, draft animals that um, could be fed. So let's finish the story on your pipeline. So, I mean, it, it seemed like a done deal, right? I mean, of- It sure looked like it. They're so powerful. And what do I know about crude oil pipelines? Um, but I got online and started reading, and I found something called the Agricultural um, Mitigation Plan. 
So it's basically a document that outlines what any energy infrastructure must do when they cross land with their easements to take care of the soil and the environment and put it back together, just like it was before they went through. <laughs> I was like, whoa, I got to see how that works. So I start reading, and it said that the MinCan pipeline would not knowingly allow more than 12 inches of topsoil erosion. That was their mitigation plan. I, I was just, like, shocked. How, what do you mean? That's a mitigation plan? They're going to allow 12 inches of topsoil erosion? No clue whatsoever of how farming and food production works. Okay, so we're live on Food Freedom Radio talking with Atina Diffley, who is going to have a performance at the Minnesota Fringe Festival starting August 3rd at 1 o'clock um, about uh, the play, uh, a play of the Turn Here Sweet Corn. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Hi, friends. I've been talking to you about Minnesota's first green cemetery, Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. It's an entirely new way of looking at our last earthly step. Burials are designed to have as little impact on the environment as possible. For many of us, a continuation of the commitment we made during our lifetimes. Let me suggest you go to the website, mngreengraves.com. Explore what it is. Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. It's a lovely place, a peaceful place. Minnesota's first green cemetery. Eat fresh and support local farmers this summer by shopping at the Minneapolis Farmer's Market. The market has the best selection of fresh and local fruits and vegetables, meats, and farmstead goods. Fresh at the market now, cherry tomatoes, cauliflower, broccoli, cucumbers, zucchini, beets, carrots, and even some new baby potatoes. The Minneapolis Farmer's Market is open every day, 6 a.m. to 1 p.m., plus there's additional locations Tuesday at the Hennepin County Government Center and Thursdays at Nicollet Mall. More details at mplsfarmersmarket.com. Native Ritz Radio is proud to announce we've added an extra hour. Yeah, Chuchke, one hour goes by too fast. That's right, Uncle Curtis. I'll have extra time to share important information about our sacred animals. And report national and native news from all over the country and Canada. This new hour is sponsored by Robbins Kaplan LLP, dedicated to redefining excellence for high-stakes litigation representation in Indian country. We are awake Burger Moe's gorgeous patio is open for the season. Enjoy nightly happy hours, more than 60 beers on tap, and the weather while you watch your favorite game on the outdoor screen. And don't miss live music Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Offering 20 fresh, never-frozen burger varieties, Burger Moe's also offers delicious appetizers, soups, salads, as well as unburgers, dogs, paninis, shakes, and desserts. Burger Moe's is located at 242 West 7th Street in St. Paul with plenty of free parking and online at BurgerMoe's.com. Get 50 bucks for your trade-in regardless of condition when you buy new appliances from Warner Stellion. Buy at Warner Stellion and you get our already low price guarantee. Trusted fast free delivery, professional installation, 18 months no interest financing. And now we'll buy your replaced appliances for 50 bucks each. Choose from Minnesota's best appliance selection with friendly specialists who save you time and money. Say goodbye to your tired appliances and get $50 rebates for a limited time at Minnesota's original appliance specialist, Warner Stellion. The Audubon Center of the Northwoods on Grindstone Lake west of Sandstone offers a great variety of environmental learning experiences for people of all ages running year-round. But did you know you can book your own event here at the center? Check out our lakeside dining hall and the variety of lodging and meeting accommodations available. Visit us on the web at audubon-center.org or call 320-245-ACNW. The Audubon Center of the Northwoods. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, where we plan to nurse the seeds of change. And I love that we have AudubonCenter.org as a new sponsor of Food Freedom Radio. So, yay. Um, it really ties in so nicely with the conversation that we're having today with Atina Diffley, um, author of Turn Here Sweet Corn, which is now going to be a play at the uh, Minnesota Fringe Festival going on this week. Yeah, I'd love to see all of you there. I'll be there for the first few shows today, tomorrow, and Monday. Awesome. And so we have to finish the story of the pipeline. Imagine being told that someone's going to cross your land and they have the right to cause erosion. 12 inches topsoil, that's like what we have. That's our prairie soil. That's what's left. 
uh, that was the moment where I went from giving my power away to saying <laughs> about 20 times a day, I'm going to get those, you know, <laughs> the word I can't say on the radio. Uh, and I just got so much power from that. But, you know, what we did, long story made short, if you want to get the full story, come to the play or, or read my book, Turn Here Sweet Corn. Uh, you can get the full story of how we did that. And I have all our legal documents that we filed uh, on my website at com. But we intervened in the legal proceeding. Uh, for that routing permit. And our primary goal was to argue that organic farms are a valuable natural resource, like a wetland, because of the ecosystem services that they provide. And that that's different than a chemical farming system because we are creating these rich soils, because we're creating um, beneficial habitat for species other than the agricultural crop that is all part of that, that um, ecosystem service that's being provided. So we argued in court. We hired Paula Maccabee as our attorney and argued in court that an organic farm should be protected when feasible, like a wetland, and wrote an organic agricultural mitigation plan to protect the soils and um, certification of an organic farm. I'm sure that wasn't easy. That was it, a lot of work. Yeah. And one of the really big things I learned, because it was so scary and they're so powerful. I mean, every hearing, they'd have like 20 men in black suits <laughs> and I'd have my little short, me and Paula, we're both like under five foot four um, women, but we were powerhouses and we knew we were right. And we had the community behind us. So we had our legal argument. We realized that, you know what, we don't know. I don't know about crude oil pipelines. I know about organic, and I know about why organic matters and why local food matters. And my customers, we were primarily selling through the natural food co-ops. They knew it mattered. So we started a letter-writing campaign. The co-ops were amazing at getting the word out. They had, like, letter-writing stations in the front of the produce departments. You couldn't buy produce in those stores <laughs> without being said, did you write your letter yet? Um, and we just said to people, you are experts on why this food matters to you. Please write a letter to the judge about how you will be affected if this farm is gone. And these letters were so amazing. They were from doctors who talked about sick patients that when they changed their diet to organic food, got well. They were from parents who cared about what their kids ate. They were from environmentalists who had seen the difference when soil had been changed in its uh, production practices. 4,200 people wrote letters to the judge over a two-month period. 4,200. And it was an organic – it was the hope of the – it was the co-ops though that were that, – that we had a e- living ecosystem. We had a living ecosystem to get that message out. If we had not been direct marketing, if we had not had a brand name Farm Gardens Vegan that people knew and cared about and – oh, I remember this one letter where they talked about that they had four generations who had eaten Gardens of Vegan Sweet Corn. And that they have their family reunion every year on August 15th because that's when they can get the sweet corn and the watermelons f- from the Gardens Vegan. And that was in the letter. And so what effectively happened, you know, the judge and the Public Utilities Commission, they wrote all, read all those letters. Those letters educated them, the judge and the PUC, on what is organic. They didn't know anything about organic. They knew about crude oil pipelines. And so that really is the role we have as human beings in a system is to speak about what matters from our own experience. Um, And it's been very fascinating. We did win this case. We were able to write an organic mitigation plan for the state of Minnesota that is now standard practice for uh, pipelines and public utilities power lines in Minnesota. And it's been adopted by other states and it's being adopted by um, just any energy company all over the country, even when it's not law. They're seeing that they have to deal with these farms in a different way. It's not the same system. So that was really positive and our farm wasn't crossed. It followed the roadway, which is where it should have been anyways. It should be cutting through new agricultural land. Um, And so that was all really wonderful. But what it really did was People saw that their voice mattered. And it's something that we really have to remember is to speak from our own experience and our own expertise about what matters and to keep that voice there. Since that hearing and that case, the PUC and the judge have watched them make different decisions. That judge added to the routing permit that any landowner, whether they're organic or not, a home or a farm, has the right to say they don't want any chemicals on their easement. That is life-changing. Before this, those um, power companies would say, if you don't want herbicides, then you have to manage this easement. 
and put they put the burden of that on the landowner who doesn't have the equipment to do that. So they that process educated, and now different decisions are being made. So we just have to educate people. Well, and the education you had on yourself and what you learned from that um, – I love this. Um, override your self-doubts. They are not useful when you need to be strong. That is so true. Yeah. And when you're discouraged, take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> this whole self-care. And you want to talk a little bit about self-care? We only have two minutes left. But with so much trauma that we're kind of – we're all aware of the trauma. Yeah. You know, uh, we are on some level. You know, after my book came out, I spent the next 10 years on the road a lot as a speaker and educator. And eventually I got worn out. It's hard to eat right and sleep right, et cetera, on the road. And so I've actually just taken the last three months um, as a self-care to focus on sleep, stress management, nutrition, and exercise, the four pillars of health. And I've really learned that sleep and stress management um, are the pivotal ones because when they fall apart, then the exercise and nutrition falls apart. And so I am so revived, and that is just so critical that we all – it's just like reviving the soil. We need to also take care of ourselves. Are you optimistic about the future? I am absolutely optimistic (laughs) because I believe in the life process, and I've I've seen how life um, is reviving. We bring all these species together, and that is something that we can do. We just need a lot of us doing it, and there are a lot of us that care about this. So we all have to just remember we're all out there together doing this. That's cool. And what's your idea of food freedom? My idea of food freedom is that we can feed ourselves in a local community with methods that are not destroying our environment. Cool. So last minute of the show, again, uh, your play is at Minnesota Fringe Festival, um, August 3rd. The first showings today at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, and you can find tickets on the Fringe site or you can go to my Facebook page, Atina Diffley, and I've got a link there for tickets. Awesome. And you can also get your book and your website. You can. It's available as an audio. I read it myself, so that was fun, a Kindle, a hardcover, or a paperback. So, And there's also a documentary um, about Turn Here Sweet Corn at the um, Egan Library, I know, at the Dakota County Libraries. That was filmed in 1989, and it focuses on the development. Yeah, the last, the last farms in Egan. And do you think we can ever try to reclaim some of that? Those farms in Egan? A lot of houses there now. Yeah, yeah. I know, but um, I do a little permaculture in my yard. I'm getting tired. If anyone drives around, they can see how sick the water is. That's true. We can do permaculture in the yard. I've got hazelnuts. I have hazelnuts. Hazelnuts and lots of little things. So thank you so much, Atina Diffley. Thank you. Uh, And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Have a great day. You too. Enjoy the weekend. Mm -hmm.